This morning, we're back in Acts. Eric, please start us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather together here in freedom. We thank you for our pastor and for each person here. Lord, you, you, uh, you guide each of us. And we ask that you would open our eyes, help us to learn what our teacher is teaching us. Be with each of us today and help us to understand what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, we did Acts 11.1 1, a couple weeks ago. Here we have the narrative in Acts 10, where God saved these God-fearing Gentiles and brought them into Christian fellowship. Now what's going to go on is Peter has to go address the other apostles and Christians who were going to wonder why Peter was having fellowship with Gentiles. Okay, so last time I mentioned decomai is a word that means welcomed. It's a little stronger positive term than other terms that could have been used. So he welcomed the Gentiles who had welcomed God's message. The lesson for us, if someone believes the gospel, it's because God welcomed them. Hallelujah. And um, we cannot reject, based on sociological issues, whom God has welcomed by the gospel. Now, the tendency to do that is always there, but we've got to lay that aside. Do they love Christ? Have they repented? Do they believe the gospel? Are they confessing the gospel? That's our brothers and sisters. Praise God. Especially now that it was so obvious how much the world hates us. I've been preaching that upstairs in in second, first, second, third John, and really it's from the Gospel of John. The world hates us. We have each other. If we start hating each other, there's not too many places to go. Everybody hates us. And that's a bad state to be in. So this is a very important in Luke Acts. Remember Luke Acts, two-volume work by Luke, who's a brilliant writer inspired by the Holy Spirit. So he's going to tell the others what God did and why he did what he did. That is what Peter did. So let's go to Acts 11, 2. And three. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision took issue with him, saying, You went to men who were uncircumcised and ate with them. That's the accusation, which was completely true. That's exactly what he did. Just so you know, this LEB is Lexham English Bible. Some people wonder why I use so many different translations when I get the English up there. If you're new, let me explain why. All of my B 
Biblical exegesis is done from the Greek first. I do all the Greek, 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 decide what's important and why based on the context, the author's meaning, and so on. I'm not claiming I'm better than the translators, but not every language ex- expert knows the narrative unity of Luke Acts. There are other things that I know are important because I've been preaching Luke Acts for 10 years. And uh, after the Greek, in my logos, I've got all these possibilities. I'm looking for ones that I think bring out what's important in this particular section. But I will give you some of the Greek to help you know why I did what I did with my choice. Took issue here. Those uh, took issue with him is diacrino, which has to do with crino is to judge, and diacrino is accentuated with a prefix through. So the interesting thing about it is that earlier, the same word was used by Luke to describe the spirit telling Peter what not to do. Okay, so they're doing to Peter what the Holy Spirit told Peter not to do. So there's a little irony going on here. And now in Acts 15, 9, this will come up again. And there it says, and he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. One of the things we're going to see today and in the future is that the idea of cleansing is specifically uh, important and salient under the new covenant. And it has to do with how God takes an unclean, wicked, unrighteous, undesirable, unacceptable sinner and cleanses us so that we can go to God and worship him freely and be part of the family of God. How can that be? That has to do with cleansing of the heart. You can change your diet. You can change who you associate with. And you can follow certain religious rules. But you can't cleanse your heart. God does that. We know that from the Old Testament. Many times, Eric and I will point you back to Jeremiah. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who could ever do anything for these hearts that are hard and don't want to listen to God? But only God can cleanse the heart. In this case, God took unclean Gentiles and cleansed their hearts. And now the church has to decide, do we want somebody sitting down and eating with us who we normally would never accept simply because God accepted them in Christ and cleansed them? To us, it seems, well, obviously we should. But it wasn't so easy. Read Luke Acts. (laughs) Read Acts. 
we're not done with this. The Lord keeps me here and capable. I'll eventually get to Acts 21. Paul, they were ready to kill him over this. In Acts 21, this gets more intense, not less. Paul did all this stuff to try to head off this schism between the Jerusalem church and all the Gentile Christians in Asia Minor. He took up an offering. He brought money. He even was willing to do what he normally wouldn't do, which was do oaths and rituals of purification, Acts 21, to hopefully let them see that he's not against them because they're Jewish Christians. The whole thing blew up, and he was ended up in, as a prisoner in Rome. So this is the key issue going on. Don't take this too lightly. It's very, very uh, important. So I'm going to quote Dr. Pole Hill, great commentary on Acts. Quote, evidently they represented a strongly Jewish perspective and felt that only Gentiles who became a Christian would have to do so by converting to Judaism and undergoing full Jewish proselyte procedure, which included circumcision. Hence, they were known as the circumcision group since they would require it of all Gentile converts. They may well have been the same group as those believers mentioned in 15.5, it was already in Acts 15, who belonged to the Pharisees. It required Gentiles to be circumcised and live by the Mosaic law. Huge battle. And it was God's doing that this was resolved as it was that Gentile believers did not have to become Jewish proselytes, keep the law of Moses, and be circumcised. That was settled. And it was settled by the Holy Spirit, not by the traditions of man. So we need to keep that in mind. Eric, you got your own mic. Could you read Acts 10, 48? And maybe you want to give a comment on what I'm going to talk about, Eric? Yeah. Why are they so upset about eating with them when they don't even seem to care that they've been baptized? Go ahead and talk about it. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So these Gentiles had already been baptized, but now they're more worried about what they ate or with whom. Yeah, and you know, I, Bob, you bring up a very important point that you've talked about in some of your writings, that Jesus ate with sinners. And the reason I want to mention that is because the issue of table fellowship, if God has invited someone to their table, you and I can't exclude them. And baptism is merely a sign that we, in fact, have been united with Christ. You look at Romans chapter 6, if we've been united with Christ, and therefore we've been brought to his table... Who are human beings to exclude someone that Christ has invited to the table? Bob wrote an article in his Critical Issues commentary called Dining with the King. And one of the great points that he makes is if Christ invites someone to dinner, you and I can't disinvite them. (laughs) It sounds bad. bad. (laughs) Yeah, it's a very bad thing. And that's about, uh, we see this in the warnings with the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, to discern the body correctly, 
doesn't mean we try to discern what type of food is proper for the Lord's Supper, but it's to discern who Christ has purchased with his blood. And if they're welcome to the table of Christ, we can't disassociate with them. That's the issue. We can't disassociate with those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ. It's a huge lesson. Yes, you can see this comes back in 1 Corinthians 11. I don't know if you read that article, but it goes all the way through the Bible talking about table fellowship and why it's so important and why, for one thing, Paul makes a big issue out of it because they invited their rich friends to come in and dine sumptuously and the poor people could stay outside and have a few morsels and that was their Lord's Supper in Corinth. We can't do that. Our status in the body of Christ is not determined by our ethnicity, our wealth, anything else about us, our gender, but the fact that we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Now, there is church discipline for those who won't repent of moral evil. I'm not belittling that issue, but it's it's to be taken seriously because people want to come back to fellowship and they'll repent. But if you are in good standing with Christ, you cannot be in bad standing with the church. Uh, my wife, uh, she uh, grew up in a church where they, uh, out in western Minnesota, put too much emphasis on uh, confirmation and baptism. And when she was saved to the navigators, she went back to the church that she grew up in in western Minnesota and mentioned that to the pastor, and he, he gave her a very funny response. Well, he said, you know, you were baptized and blah, blah, blah. You were confirmed and blah, blah, blah. You know, like everything was on that instead yeah. of... Okay. Faith in Christ, accepting him as your Lord and Savior. Yes. Thank you. Boy, I love that voice he has. He should go on the radio, don't you think? That's a radio voice. Anyhow, let me respond to that, and then I'll get right to you. See, the traditions that develop in church history are not necessarily binding on the consciences of Christians. And next week, by the way, we're going to have one of our dear brothers, Dan, speak about the Reformation. Okay, because it's been 500 years. And so next Sunday school, next week, you got to hear it. I've seen the outline. It is unbelievable. Just fantastic material. When, when Eric and I went to preach up in Canada, my topic was the authority of Scripture and the priesthood of every believer. See, church tradition isn't binding if it disagrees with the Bible. Did the Bible ever say, if you have children and you baptize them as infants, and then when they're 12, force them to confess things whether they believe them or not, that will make them Christian? Can somebody tell me where the Bible says that? Nowhere. 
So you're right. Hezekiah? Hezekiah, yeah, the book of Hezekiah. And uh, it doesn't say that. That's the traditions of men. Now, those who, Luther was wrong about baptism. I understand that. But he was right about the authority of Scripture. So we have the liberty to correct Luther from Scripture. I don't mind doing it. Doesn't mean I don't love Luther, but infant baptism is not taught in Scripture, nor the substantiation doctrine. That gets it all wrong, too. So I talk about that up in Canada. Authority of Scripture, priesthood of every believer. Let me tell a story that happened when I was a new Christian. I was born again in July 1971 and baptized in a little Pentecostal church across the park from Diane, my wife's parents' house that nobody would ever go to because they were so eccentric. But we were baptized there, me, my wife, before we were married, we were just boyfriend, girlfriend, her parents and so on, her brother, all baptized. And at that time, the gospel was going out and there were new people coming to Christ. And what happened was about that time, I went off from Iowa State. I went to Bible college feeling called to preach. And I was back in the summer. So summer, we had a coffee house witnessing for Christ right on downtown. One of, my, one of our first persons that came and got saved was my brother, Wayne. You know, Wayne, he came to Christ right there. Well, when this happened, there was a lady who came to Christ who had been baptized in a Dutch Reformed church and as an infant. And she was so excited for Christ, she told her pastor, I want to be baptized. Same thing. Oh, you already were. No, I want to be baptized. I know Christ. I want to confess him by being baptized like these people here. There was a big flap going on with that Reformed church. And finally, she so insisted that the pastor said, okay, you can be baptized over in that church, but I want to be there. Well, that's fine. You can come and see it, but I want to be baptized. I was at that service. This lady was glowing with the joy of the Lord. And as she was baptized, before she went down into the water, she sang a song about the gospel. And it was so beautiful. And I'll never forget that. This was similar because the traditions of men are like a jail cell for many people. They can't get away from the traditions. We have to let scripture correct our traditions if that's what needs to happen. Yes, brother. I was wanting to talk about uh, that section that said you went to men who were circumcised and ate with them. Um, and I was wanting yeah. to especially talk about, say, where a group of people don't necessarily accept another group of people as they come in. Uh, in Normandy, apparently, when people, they stormed the beaches and people were killed and they had refreshment, new recruits come and fill in the, uh, the gaps, that they were not immediately accepted for a while. But they had kind of earned their own stripes 
And the same sort of thing, I'm wondering if that's the mindset you're talking about. Here are these new Gentiles, but they weren't with us from the beginning. They're new recruits. They're brand new. So therefore, they got to do a couple things. I mean, we shouldn't even... Are you, are you understand yeah, what I'm saying? But this is even stronger because the ones who were objecting had actually suffered persecution for being Jewish. The Jews have always been hated and persecuted. And so they had suffered for that. And now people are going to come in who hadn't gone through what they did. They hadn't been rejected by the Romans and everybody else. And they hadn't gone through all the things that had happened to them. So it's kind of hard to accept. Let me say something. That's a good question. Let me say something I've noticed a lot in the last 40 years. There is a good reason. I appreciate on this last week. Why is it that the sign that's essential is confessing Jesus Christ come in the flesh? That's what John said. How do you know the work of the Spirit? How do you know somebody's really a Christian? How do you separate the true from the false, the valid from the invalid, those who are of us, as John says, and those who went out from us? Here's what it says. Whoever confesses Jesus Christ come in the flesh. Now, if you were here last week, here's what I preached on that. This not only means that the incarnation is true, that Jesus came, preexisted as God with God. In the flesh, he was born of a virgin, as predicted in the Bible. He lived as a human, fully human and fully God. I talked about the hypostatic union and the validity of his claims being vindicated when he predicted his own resurrection from the dead and was raised. And when he went into heaven in Acts, they watched him go up into the clouds. And what did the angel say? Can you remember, Eric? Men, men of Galilee, why do you get skyward? This Jesus is coming back in like manner. Is he going to come back as a spirit or as the incarnate Christ? He's going to come back in the flesh. And I said last week, if you weren't here, here we have best-selling books channeling a spirit Jesus who says, I want my people to be aware of presence. The spirit Jesus fails the test. Awareness of presence isn't Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. He sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. Yes. I was just going to comment on his comment as well. I was thinking about the parable that Jesus gave about the harvest. And you have the owner of the land. He goes in and he gathers people at the beginning of the day. And he says, oh, come work for me in the harvest. And then he goes back a couple hours later and gets more people and gets more people later in the day. And finally, the end of the day comes and he pays people all the same amount. And the people at the beginning, we worked at the hottest part of the day and we worked all day long and they get the same amount as we did. And he said, I choose to give freely to these people and I gave you what you, I was promised and you received it and you know, be joyful and I can give freely to who I choose. To. Amen. That is an astute reading. Amen. Free coffee. 
Stuart reading. That's exactly right. Well, we had to go through all of this for all these years. Now these Gentiles show up. Why do we want them? We need to welcome whom God saves and God accepts. I have some verses to look up. Steve Minty, could you look, look up Luke 5.30? Norm, could you look up Luke 15.2? Clitoris, Luke 19.7. Okay, Steve, when you have it, Luke 5.30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? They were mad at Jesus. Yes. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This man receives sinners. They grumbled. Now, if you remember, you probably don't. It was 10 years ago when I preached through this in Luke. The term grumbled in the Greek is the same in the Septuagint for the grumbling in the wilderness. We don't like how God does things. Who's God? Can't he do what he chooses to do? Who gave us his manna? Grumble, grumble. This is the Messiah. He's eating with sinners. Grumble, grumble. All right, go ahead. All who saw it began to complain. He's gone to lodge with a sinful man. What did he say again? I missed it. Oh, this is 19-7? Yes. All, he, all who saw it began to complain. He's gone to lodge with a sinful man. Oh, he went and stayed with a sinful man. So Jesus ate with sinners and lodged with them. And they go to the next verse. A key issue is that the Old Testament law was designed to create separation. The New Testament is designed to create inclusion for those who repent and believe the gospel. This is a key issue, and Paul addresses it in Galatians, which we preach through. One reason Moses is not binding the law of Moses is to make it possible for the gospel to go to all the peoples. If we're going to separate based on these sort of things, there's no way the gospel goes all over the world. By the way, thinking of that, I am in the email correspondence for the last three years with a pastor in Kenya and we pray for one another. We pray, I pray for their congregation. They pray for us. I got an email this last week from this dear pastor. He said this, we're having chaos in Kenya because remember they had an election, you may not know, they had an election and there were riots because they claimed it was rigged. So they set a new election for so many days out. Now the new election is coming. They have riots again. Because they have no stability. And so people start looting and burning and throwing rocks. And everybody's life is in danger. And it's really hard to do anything when you're living in chaos. So this dear pastor, Eric, in Kenya, has asked us to pray for him and the dear saints 
to gather with him, that God would keep them safe, and to pray for their country that they'd get a stable government so they can just go back to taking care of the saints and preaching the gospel. So we're blessed if we have a stable place to preach, are we? Um, Luann. Well, I just thought, too, I was thinking of how this topic makes me think of Jonah and Nineveh because, you know, I mean, that was a horrible, horrible region, and Jonah was sent there. And don't send me there. In your mercy, you're going to forgive them, and they're going to repent. And that's exactly what happened, and they had nothing in common. Good. That's two astute readings in one day. Um, Eric, could you remember that when we close in prayer that we need to spend some time to pray for Pastor Eric, the saints that he takes care of in Kenya, and that government? Okay, thank you. Uh, I have a friend, and he claims he prayed the sinner's prayer but he has no desire to read the Bible. It's the most challenging friendship I've ever had in my life, but he likes me, and I can't quite figure this out. The only book in the Bible that he thought is he's sort of kind of read is Ecclesiastes. His wife is a Christian, and I was I visited him last night. I was in his home last night, and, you know, he talks to talk, you know, about going to heaven and all that kind of stuff, but I I think I've talked till I've about blue in the face, and finally I just have to leave it to the Holy Spirit, yeah. I guess, to yeah. uh, reveal to him how important it is if you did and or didn't and need to do business seriously with God, then if you want to grow as a Christian, you need to read your Bible every day. So You have a love for it. Huh? Yeah, yeah, if you're truly converted, you'll love God's Word. Yeah, you'll long to read His Word. Yeah, when I was saved, I didn't know what to do, so I started reading John, and I loved it. And then um, the pastor told me I should be baptized. I think I told you a story. I said, oh, I was baptized as a baby. Well, he wasn't going to use coercion. This is an evangelical pastor. He, uh, he said, you should do what the Bible says, because if you're a Christian. I said, okay, where do I find that out? Why don't you read Acts? So I read about two chapters, called pastor, when can I be baptized? <laughs> you see, you can say the sinner's prayer it doesn't mean you're converted. Okay, who was next? Anybody? All right. Okay, Lonnie. Um, I think a big problem, uh, new converts to Christianity, um, to kind of find out where they're at or what, uh, they should be in some sort of a discipleship program. And that's, I think that's very important. Um, There's quite a few of them, like Navigators has theirs. Uh, they have the Colossians 2-7 program. They have, you know, Design for Discipleship, with, which anybody can look at. Um, I went through Operation Timothy. Um, but, I mean, somebody, I mean, when somebody's born again, they have to immediately find some sort of a mentor or somebody to, like, 
like Timothy had Paul. Okay. They have to have somebody. They have to go through a discipleship program. Well, I mean, me, that's the best way to build your faith. Let me respond to that. Some of those might be all right, but I, I would not recommend program. I recommend church. And well, that's what they want to do, and it's okay. But a lot of those are parochial. We're the only ones. Let me give you an example. When I was a new Christian, I went to Ames, Iowa, to witness on the campus of Iowa State University and preach Christ, or just on weekends, because that's where I'd been a student. Then I went back up to Bible College, Minneapolis. We were going around preaching Christ, and we saw some guys with a Bible, and we said, oh, praise God, we're Christians. And they said, oh, we're navigators. So are you a Christian or are you a navigator? Okay, we don't want to be parochial. Okay, I'm not saying the navigators are all bad, but if they're going to disciple people, they should disciple them for Jesus Christ, not for their own system where they go around saying, I'm a navigator, I'm a navigator. No, I'm a Christian. They didn't get it right. I know you are, Lonnie. I'm not accusing you. I know you're a Christian and not a navigator. Go ahead. But if you are a navigator, make sure you're really a Christian and proclaim Christ. Go ahead. I I just want to kind of offer a little bit of my own, you know, experience. I came to faith in Christ, but... I didn't know enough, and I went. Uh, the problem I think is that there's, there's a lot of churches that just don't preach Christ. They're, they're preaching all kinds of other things. And so, when I was a new Christian, I look back and I think to myself, "It's only by God's grace that I've." You know, and my wife and I both look at it, both of us. And you know, for me, I was going to. A, it was a Lutheran church, and they did have a little navigators program. And, and actually, I learned some stuff. But as I look back. I didn't learn enough. And so you have to have a church with good preaching. There's somehow people, for, for most new Christians, it seems like what I hear from them is that the Bible is just where, where you start. And the Christian gospel is very simple. We're, we're sinners saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. Um, and we have to repent. We, we know all of that. But for a new Christian, it, it, it's bewildering. So I think the churches have to be preaching Christ, yeah. I guess. Listen, if we teach the whole counsel of God, people will grow right here. Here's another reason I hesitate. I heard from people through my CIC ministry over the years who were being turned over to Beth Moore. Oh, you're a new Christian. Beth Moore has a great program to help you grow. And Beth Moore is claiming to hear new revelations from God beyond Scripture. And we did a conference back the first time we were in this building called, you know, who's 10 a meeting? So if somebody thinks they need to be in a program, how do I know they're not going to be under Beth Moore learning how to be a mystic rather than how to believe Jesus Christ came in the flesh? Yes. If I might add to Bob, I have appreciated your recent teachings, particularly on the gift of the love of the truth. You've said that a number of times recently, and it is such a beautiful a gift that we have. And um, 
one thing that gives me great comfort is the verse that says that the Holy Spirit will lead us into truth. And I thank God that he brought me here to this church to hear the truth preached exegetically, verse by verse, Sunday by Sunday. And so I thank you for that. Well, thank you, Gail. Let's go to another verse. Talking about verse by verse. Let's get to one. Acts 11, 4. But Peter began and explained it to them in an orderly sequence saying, now I stop right there for this reason. I want to talk about this orderly sequence because critics have supposedly found errors in the Bible based on a false understanding of what the Bible means it is saying. Orderly sequence does not mean in the exact same, let me add, chronological order. This happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and that's how it's got to be. And if anything gets out of order, you have an error in the Bible. Have you heard that? Okay, because you can go through the Gospels and find different order. That's not the point. Orderly sequence meant in a way to, pro, to persuade the audience that it was indeed the Holy Spirit who not only saved Gentiles, but included them in Christian table fellowship. Now, where this artificial idea came that history has to be, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, that is not even how we explain contemporary history. We don't always talk by timeline. We talk by topic and by things that have significance. So somebody might write a book about the history of assassination attempts and talk about what all was going on in the bigger world that led to this. Now they're talking about JFK again because they're releasing stuff. And yes, in forensic, we want to sometimes know what happened and how, but you also want to know why. And why is not always explained by chronological sequence, but by the significance of the event in a bigger context. So in Peter's speech, this meant showing significant things that God did through his spirit to cause Gentiles to be brought into the church and to be part of table fellowship. And it doesn't have to be this happened, then this happened, then this happened, because that doesn't necessarily tell us exactly how things work. Notice that Luke does that. He'll be dealing with Peter for a while. Paul's already been converted, but Paul's going to come back and be significant. It goes back and forth. Uh, let me say a few things. Notice how Paul's various accounts of his conversion are not identical in content, but designed to convince a specific audience and to explain the gospel. Just go ahead and try. Now, we know Luke is brilliant. People that know way more than I do 
about the Greek and the historical background are just stunned by how brilliant Luke is, and which gives credence to the idea he was well-educated, and how he tells his story. The whole travel narrative, starting in Luke 9 and going back to, I don't know where it is, like Luke 19 or whatever, is a giant chiasm. And it's unbelievable how he did that. So Luke isn't so dense that he doesn't know that when Paul said this to this guy, he said this to this other king, he said this here, Luke reported it, that the details are different, are they not? Just lay them all out. And if you're a critic, you say, see, the Bible contradicts itself. Now, if Luke thought it was necessary to have Paul say identical things in front of every king so that no critics would come along, he could easily have done that. But what Paul actually did was chose details that would be persuasive to the audience at hand. That's what Luke means by orderly sequence. So you're talking to Jewish Christians who are inclined to reject Gentiles who just came to Christ. Peter, through Luke's writing, chooses what he thinks will be salient to convince the audience. And chronology, as far as when something happened or what's included, isn't the key issue. Do you have anything to say on that, Eric? I I do. You know, Bob, it's interesting. For years, the approach to hermeneutics was you look at all the synoptic gospels, you lay them out, you find where they agree and where they disagree, you kind of get that aside, try to figure out what the root meaning is. But the better approach of what Bob's laying out is that each of the individual writers of the Bible were inspired by the Spirit. Let me give you an example. You look at the Olivet Discourse. It's the longest-running discourse in the New Testament. You look at Mark and Matthew. They set the setting of the Olivet Discourse on the Mount of Olives right after the destruction of the temple was foretold. Well, that brings to the mind Zechariah 12 through 14, where destruction of Jerusalem will happen, but Messiah comes and he intervenes. So the focus in Matthew and Mark is not on 70 A.D., the destruction of Jerusalem, but it's on the one that's coming in the future, in the day of the Lord. Well, Luke doesn't set the setting of the Olivet Discourse on the Mount of Olives, and he talks about both the 70 A.D. destruction and the future destruction that happens in the day of the Lord. Now, they're not saying a contradiction. Just like someone in an accident, you have two people. One says, I saw a red car and two guys. Well, the next person says, I saw a red car and three guys. Well, they're not saying something different. Just one person noticed another guy. And you see the same thing with the gospel writers and the narratives that they write. They have special focuses as they're inspired by the Spirit to write precisely what they wrote. We believe in what's called the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture. Plenary means the whole thing. Verbal means every single word. So these writers were inspired to write what they wrote as Bob is saying, for a specific theological task. It does match up with history. We're not saying it's divorced from history. It happened in history. But again, they're not worried about chronological order. They're more concerned, as Bob mentioned, the significance. Like how many blind men were there? Exactly. Bartimaeus or... Yeah, right. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. See, before, one of the things that I would 
resist is they used to publish gospel parallels. Remember those? Well, what we really need to know is an orderly historical from, so you take all of the gospels, at least the synopsis, and stuff them all together. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. So you take Mark, Matthew, Luke. I don't know if anybody added John to that, but put it all in there. Now we're more happy. Listen, that will not help you understand. It'll actually cloud it. Cloud it. We don't do that. It's an artificial idea. What if you wanted to know the significance of the last presidential election? And you read all the columns in New York Times, Washington Post, Minneapolis Star and Sickle, I mean Star and Tribune, and uh, all of these, and then maybe some other ones, and you try to paste them all together to get one story. Would that be impossible? Of course. Because some people are writing to say, this is horrible, this is tragic, what happened? And other people are writing to say, you know, this is the hope for the economy. Everybody's got their own idea. But in the Gospels, everybody is writing to affirm the Gospels. They're all inspired by the Holy Spirit, but you can't divide them into sections and get a better story. You get a clouded one. Now, Luke Acts is a two-volume work. What is fantastic, and it'll change your understanding it's to read Luke Acts as a two-volume work. Let me illustrate. Luke 1, 3, if you want to turn there with me. Luke 1, 3. We'll see what Luke means by orderly sequence. Luke 1, 3. Quote, this is Luke. It seemed best to me also because I have followed all things carefully from the beginning to write them down in orderly sequence for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, this doesn't mean this happened, then this happened, then this happened. So because Luke has material. Oh, it's so brilliant. I love it. Luke 1 and Luke 2 and the Holy Spirit using people to proclaim what God was doing. We have more details in there. And then there's a little different genealogy, isn't there? And it comes at a different point. Well, what happened? Did Luke get goofed up? No, he's making a point. He's making a point that's powerful and brilliant. So orderly sequence doesn't mean chronological sequence. Christy. Um, my NASB says consecutive order. So would you say that would be kind of an inaccurate translation? Well, uh, it may be an accurate translation, but we want to know what Luke meant by it. Okay. Consecutive order, orderly sequence. Um, you could see why some people would think that meant chronological sequence, right. but these have to do with the point Luke's made. Listen, Eric and I, when we've taught on hermeneutics, we believe in authorial intent. What did Luke mean? Luke was inspired by the Holy Spirit. I used to have that 
I don't know where it is. If you ever saw the chiastic structure of the travel narrative, you could tell that Luke's doing this for theological reasons. How many chapters of Luke are all about Jesus traveling to Jerusalem? Chapter after chapter after chapter. But the, Luke has a theological point. Yes. Actually, um, I think that when we talk about a chronological, in other words, we're, Luke's account was it would be characterized basically with a chronological uh, pattern, but not slavishly so. In other words, that's the key thing. What, what is it characterized by? Because in other words, Luke kept the logic to it. And so it wasn't slavishly chronological. Neither, neither is the history written in our day. Right. Yeah, he we would say this. Yeah. The virgin birth happened before the crucifixion. That we know. But everything that happened during the travel narrative is not so much following chronology, although beginning toward Jerusalem and ending up there, what happened before the other, but what happened in between is helping us learn something. And details within there may not be in the same sequence as they would be in Matthew or Mark. Does that make sense? So the big outline is chronological, but I believe Luke wants us to get a point. Yes, go ahead. Um, you know, and maybe my comment I could save for later. I just didn't want to run out of time, but I was kind of, I wanted to touch on church uh, function again, and I, and I kind of, particularly because we talked about tradition and how it doesn't define the church, you know, but the, <clears throat> excuse me, the Bible does. Um, and if I could, maybe I'll just bring it up now because I've got the mic, but it, I was just reading through the uh, gifts in uh, Corinthians again. Oh, we're on a different topic oh, now. I'm sorry. Okay. I want to stay with this or we're going to lose our momentum. We'll do that one at a different time. I'm sorry, but I want to stay on this topic, not 1 Corinthians, because that's slightly off topic. But I just got some details. Actually, Eric, as long as you have the mic, could you go to Luke 9.51 and read it? By the way, if you're in this church and you say, Eric, you're going to get somebody. <laughs> Guaranteed somebody will... Here you go. go ahead. If you could look, right. read Luke 9.51. All right, 9.51. When the days were coming to a close for him to take up, oh, for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. Okay, he, he determined or set his face. Now, while you have the mic, that's Luke 9.51. That's the beginning of the travel narrative. So Jesus is determined to go to Jerusalem. Now, it ends in Luke 19, 10 chapters later. Now, go ahead and read that, Luke 19, 57. Okay, you mean 47? I, I had 57. Did I get it wrong? Uh, Somebody can correct me. It goes up to 47. Well, then I did it wrong. Oh. Let's try 47. Okay. Every day, he, typed wrong. <laughs> every day he was teaching in the temple complex. The chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to destroy him. Is that as far as you are? Yeah. So he gets there. They want to kill him. He sets his face to go. Now there's a chiastic structure. 
One, two, or A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, and then K, and going backwards, however many points, back to that point. If you saw the structure of it, Kenneth Bailey did the work on this. It's unbelievable. And it emphasizes, guess what it emphasizes? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The beginning, the middle, the end. Jerusalem. Because that's where it all happens. That's where Messiah is rejected by his own people. That's where the Jerusalem who kills the prophets. How often I would have gathered you like chicks to a hen, but you would not. There's an unbelievable tragedy that's revealed in the travel narrative. I'm sorry I had that second verse wrong, but it ends up there. So there, here's my point. There is a structure to this that is not dictated by chronological sequence, but by issues that are being revealed. Okay. What time? All right. We got a couple of minutes. Hey, we did two, what, three verses? We need to pray for Kenya. You heard my request. Pastor Eric in Kenya has asked us, should I have Eric, Pastor Eric here do it? Pastor Eric, we want to pray for Pastor Eric in Kenya, who's asked us to pray for his country, that they get a stable government so that they can do anything in that country and particularly have a church and preach the gospel. Go ahead. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study your word in freedom and peace. And we think today of our brothers and sisters that are so precious. You purchased them with your blood in Kenya, this Pastor Eric and his congregation. Lord, we do pray for them. We pray, Lord, that you would give them a government that does restrain evil, that they would be able to live peaceful lives and to proclaim your gospel in freedom. We do pray for the restraint of evil, that governing authorities would come to bear that would honor you and realize that you're the king of kings. We do pray for Eric, the pastor there, and the whole congregation, that they would stand firm in the faith, that they would contend for the faith once for all handed down to the saints, and that you give them boldness for the gospel. We also pray for your favor to be upon them with all people. We pray that you'd give them opportunity to preach, give them protection, and we lift them up into Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.